This conversation with the Pakistani traveller and writer Salman Rashid is number 13 in an audio series we're calling Another Pakistan, recorded in midsummer 2011. It's a co-production of the Watson Institute at Brown University and the Asia Society. Our travelling music is Sohail Rana's train piece, Khyber Mail. I'm Christopher Leiden with Salman Rashid in his walled garden on the south side of Lahore. He's an effusive wanderer in the footprints of Kim and Richard Burton, the legendary explorer and spy in the British Raj of the 1840s. We're scoping out an overland trip through a peaceful Pakistan from the Arabian Sea to K2, the second highest peak in the world. This is open source from the Watson Institute at Brown University. Pakistani conversation with some American curiosity and maybe attitude this summer of 2011. Salman Rushdie, we don't see many Americans. I don't think I've seen one, in fact, that's not working for the U.S. government or military or the spooks this summer of 2011. But they'll be back to one of the most walkable and incredibly varied landscapes in the world. Imagine we're coming back in a year and what we must see. Let's say we begin in Karachi. You land in Karachi and I take you on a roundabout... Sindh of old. Sindh, the land that takes its name from the river. Indus is Sindh in Sanskrit or Sindhu which means a great river or even the sea. (laughs) So you travel up the river. You have a choice now. You could go east into the desert of Thar and to see these wonderful, wonderful places like a town that comes straight out of Lombardy with pitched roofs, red tiles, as if there was a lot of rain, and there used to be rain at some point in the past because that is what they tell us. This is Nagar Parker, smack on the edge of Pakistan, which was not once on the edge of Pakistan. It was on this great trade route between Shikarpur in Upper Sindh and the port cities of Gujarat in India. But after the partition of India, Nagar Parker became an on-the-edge village for Pakistan. And uh, the desert abounds with stories and legends of treasures and diamond-studded idols of the god Gorecha. It is said that Alexander, when he was in Sindh, uh, he sent out a hundred camel loads of treasure to be buried in the desert. And the local Abbasis, the people who once ruled over this uh, this desert land, they believe that the treasure is still under their fort of Daravar. What they don't know is that one of the histories records that Shah Beg Arghun, who was a great, great, great something son of Cengiz Khan, the Mongol, when he 
attacked Daravar, he did remove a vast treasure from there. Mm. So there might be still some left. Who knows? But there are places to see that uh, uh, even few Pakistanis know of. For example, the great fort of Ranikot uh, with walls. When you first look at them, you th- you believe you're looking at the Great Wall of China. Only the mountain here is extremely barren. There's not a blade of green grass. the fort and you carry on and in, and in an hour you'll be in Mohenjo-daro which was built of baked bricks now you don't find so many trees there kilns were fired to bake those bricks which were fired the kilns were fired with timber so there must have been vast forests river by the river is there a short form of the story of Mohenjo-daro Ah, yes, um, Moyanjodaro. I, I pronounce it the local way, Moyanjodaro. <laughs> we want to learn it. Uh, Moyanjodaro began when these hunter-gatherers first moved out of the Balochistan mountains to, f- first of all, they established their city of Mehrgarh, which is, uh, as the uh, rough-legged buzzard flies, this would be a couple of hundred kilometers hmm. to the northwest and eventually they moved out and spread into what is the rest of Sindh and Punjab. The city then, Mahanjadaro then flourished and uh, we have uh, Mark Kanoya, the American archaeologist who's done some uh, premium work on on Mohenjo-daro and the other Indus Valley cities. He tells us that Mohenjo-daro was so advanced in its art and craft and culture and it was trading with Babylon, with the other cities of Mesopotamia and that it was from Mohenjo-daro that craftsmen were taking some crafts, transferring them to the Babylonians who had not yet then learned or were not so refined in this craft. For example, he talks of uh, bead cutting, hmm. which went to Mesopotamia from Mayanjadaro. And then the river, uh, the Indus was flooding repeatedly. The floodings grew. The rich people of, of Mayanjadaro began to migrate to safer places the poorer people took over and we know that towards the end of its life Mohenjo-daro <clears throat> was the the quality of construction had completely deteriorated it was a poor man's city then Should we wander on? Yes, let's uh, go west into the Kirthar Mountains the name is so evocative. Kirthar. Milk cream. The milk cream mountains of Sindh. They are like a backbone between Sindh and Balochistan, stretching from about 70 kilometers north of Karachi all the way into that great jumble of hills called the Central Brahvi Range. This is a great, ragged, jagged, brown range of the most incredibly beautiful 
mountains and valleys and completely desiccated except for these tiny rivers that flow out of the hills from the upper reaches and you'll find pools of water the color of that emerald can never be really it is so beautiful and teeming with fish you just want to get lost there if you walk along the kirthar mountains you can actually go up the mula pass which kretros took after alexander handed over these 10000 aging veterans kretros himself was an old general he had served under philip alexander's father so he was handed over these 10000 veterans who were unfit for military duty now at hyderabad just north of karachi 160 kilometers north of karachi to take home to macedonia and the man traveled up the same way along the foothills of the kirthar mountains up the mula pass to the kalath plateau on balochistan skirted 160 odd kilometers south of uh, koita and went on to arakosia to kandhar who would we see there today we think of the balochis as kind of unhappy members of the pakistan family uh, it's a, it's a huge piece of the geography of pakistan very small piece of the population what what are they doing and how would they greet us okay there are three distinct people in balochistan northern balochistan is entirely pashtun the baloch themselves and then there is this other people who call themselves brahwis who speak a a very ancient archaic form of dravidian of some dravidian language it's akin to i i think they say tamil of south india they live in this area where we are right now in the kirthar mountains like their baloch brothers they too are shepherds mostly and um, i have availed of the hospitality of brahwis and baloch people alike mm-hmm. um the baloch are very private people to make friends with the baloch you have to i suppose go into battle with him <laughs> fight on his side <laughs> um, but they are great people too <clears throat> great friends the brahwis are more open but they'll all when you go, go, come to an encampment in richard burton's days it would have been encampments now there are little villages you are hospitably received generously fated and um, given a roof to sleep under the meal that they will serve all travelers of rank not everyone but a traveler of rank will be served with a roast lamb so sometimes when you arrive at 7 o'clock in the evening they'll immediately take down a a lamb which will not be ready until 2 o'clock in the morning <laughs> so there you will be drinking this <coughs> very thin um, tea without milk or sugar and uh, you'll be completely drunk on this tea by the time dinner is served at 2 or 3 in the morning Salman Rashid, how will we know we've reached the Punjab? You'll hear loud people. (laughs) 
that's the first sign of reaching Punjab. <laughs> Um, and you'll see if you're coming, if you were to take that trip and you were to enter from Iran along the, I still call it the lonely line. The British called this railway line the lonely line because there were so few stations in this vast distance of nearly 700 kilometers mm. from Koita to Zahedan. Uh, but if you were to come through, you would suddenly, as you come down the come down the Bolan Pass you will see uh, the, the change will be of, of a reduced swagger the Baloch likes to swagger hmm. the Sindhi doesn't as soon as you cross into Punjab you will hear loud noises loud voices loud laughter hmm. and, and what are they doing? we think of Punjab as one of the great bread baskets of the world. Uh, describe the day jobs of Punjabis from, you know, from the old days. Okay, uh, from very old days, we've always been farmers, uh, the Punjabis, uh, and so too the Sindhis of the plains. As soon as you get out of the Bolan Pass, you enter this stony, unirrigated, barren plain called the Pat. As soon as you leave the putt behind, you enter into the irrigated country of Upper Sindh and Lower Punjab. And uh, you'll see farmers everywhere. You'll see mm. fruit trees and uh, mango, for example, guava, oranges. And you'll see farmland with rice, wheat or maize, whatever. Can I say with apologies... I had to come to Pakistan to feel the pain of the partition of the Punjab. It's everywhere. And it seems to lie behind so much of the consciousness, even here in Lahore. I mean, specifically here in Lahore. Uh, can, we, can we see the partition line in the Punjab? And can you talk about it? You know... I'm 59 years old now. My generation is the last that will actually... Although I never experienced partition, my family did. <coughs> but my generation is the last that actually had a first-hand experience of partition. Um, the pain is still there. When I went to Jalandhar, where my family came from, in, Punjab, in Indian Punjab in 2008 I went to my grandfather's home in downtown Jalandhar I, I had a picture and this was like a film scene actually you know with me carrying this picture and asking where such a building was and they said okay I should get to uh, Bhagat Singh crossing so there I was I got off this cycle rickshaw and I walked down to my grandfather's home there's a hardware dealer on the ground floor now so I went, he was a Sikh a very young Sikh we started talking and uh, I said you know this was my grandfather's home before partition so he completely warmed up to me suddenly and he came around the, his counter, embraced me and ordered tea and cold drinks for me and we sat down and after a little while he got back to his work and I was sitting there with my hand on the counter and suddenly he puts his hand on mine and he says, listen, was your grandfather a doctor? 
I hadn't told him that. I said, how do you know? He says, I've heard the whole story. I've heard how they were killed. And uh, then he he said, okay. So he took me to several old people. Who, he could not recollect who it was that told him the story. And I was in Jalandhar for four days. And on my last day, I went to my grandfather's village to meet with the other Sikh family who was now living there. And uh, every morning I would be the first one at his store. And he would say, no, I, 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 I just cannot bring back to mind the person who told me the story. Meanwhile, we had met five or six elderly people who said, no, 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 we don't know of this story. And I began to suspect that Iqbal Singh thought, if I were to meet the man who knew who had killed my grandfather and my grandmother and my aunts and my great-grandfather mm. and so, uh, other people, I would probably go crazy or something. And, and you know, the mm. kind of reputation Muslims have now. <laughs> mm. So I, I had to tell Iqbal Singh, look, you don't have to worry about me. And he says, no, I, I know you by now. And it's not that, but I just cannot recollect. I was in the village when I got a phone call from him. He says, I've found the man and he wants to speak with you. So there I was standing with this 74-year-old man who was telling me, who took me by the hand. And he says, come here, I'll show you how it happened. And then he took me to this house, showed me the room where it had happened. Now, this was going so fast for me. I did not register when the man said, when the man, he would say, you know, he was a stupid man. He shouldn't have done this because he repented after that. I, I, I didn't register that he was speaking about his father. So I had to stop him at one point and say, look, you're only 74. You would have been 13 at the time of partition. How do you know all this? So he you know, sort of angrily he turned on me. He says, you're not listening to me. It's my stupid father who did this, not me. I was a child. And then he told me exactly how it happened. My grandfather was shot through the eye with a shotgun and the others were all then cut down with swords. My two aunts, young, one was 17, the other was 25 or 26. And my great-grandfather, my grandmother... I wanted to know if someone had been taken out. You know, there are stories of young women having been taken away and sometimes not killed but converted to live as Hindus or Sikhs. And I wouldn't mind if I were today to find out that I have cousins there. Mm. And he said, no, the, the, no living body was brought out of this home after they were finished. And then he told me that you know, uh, my grand. I said, "How do you? This is so graphic. How could you know it all as if you had actually seen it?" He said, "My father was very sorry after the event, and until he died in the uh, early 1970s, Mahinder Pratap said that his father always spoke about the the event, wept, and said it was a great sin that he had committed, killing such good people." Mm. You know, it was. I realized that. We have a common inheritance. I had inherited grief. Mahinder Pratab had inherited guilt. My grief didn't go away after that. And I, um, every time I go back to India, I go and see Mahinder Pratab. And I hope he lives long because he's my only... He's my only contact... 
with a past that I never knew. Mm. I don't know if he somehow could get his guilt out of him. I, I feel he didn't. Because he still speaks about it and he still is angry about his father having done this. You know, afterward, whether it's whether it's Rwanda or Nazi Germany or, for that matter, American slavery, people always dig and wonder and explore, you know, uh, why did it happen? Who, who made it happen? What was it in terms of the leadership or the culture or the moment um, that, it, that accounts for it? I mean, does, do, do we know on either side of this partition what, what drove neighbors to, to kill their good friends, people they admired, maybe even loved? I have no answer for this. I really don't know how it happened. For example, Mahinder Pratab's father lived only less than 50 meters away from my grandfather's home. My, father, my grandfather, being a doctor, would have treated him or his family mm. a number of times. Mm. And everybody said that my grandfather was a good doctor. So I don't know how this happened. Why they... It was made to happen. You know, I now begin to suspect that if this great transfer of populations had not taken place, if this mayhem, if, this, if all this killing had not taken place, and if simply a border had been drawn, and as my grandfather used to say, so Pakistan is coming into being, what does that mean about us having to leave home? This has been home to us always. We're going to stay here. People are going to carry on living in that side and uh, people will be free to come and go. But somewhere, someone, I don't know if it was Nehru or Jinnah or the Brits or who, they did not want that to happen because if the populations had stayed where they were, the line, the dividing line would have disappeared gradually because people would have been coming and going. There would have been no border. Mm. And the whole thing would have been become meaningless very soon. So they wanted to give it meaning. So someone plotted to begin this great movement of human beings. And uh, the killing began after the Muslims ran riot in uh, first in Bombay, then in Calcutta. That was the beginning. The Muslims began it by k killing people in 1946. We don't want to acknowledge it, but that's the truth. Mm. As Mohinder Pratap, when, I, when he finished his story, I asked him, why? Why did this happen? Why, why did it have to happen like this? And he looked uh, down for a few seconds, and then he said, you know, it was a time of great madness. That's the title of my book that I'm writing about my family. My word. It was a time of great madness. How do how do people imagine getting over this? We, we imagine, you know, Bishop Tutu uh, doing a five-year truth and reconciliation project uh, on the border or something, getting the stories out, dealing, as you say, with the guilt and the grief. Uh, you know, we. I think the time to forgive has come, and uh, the people are ready. Because, you know, when we, 
I have been now several times back to India and uh, being a Punjabi I've only once been to Delhi all the time I just cannot pull myself away from the Punjabi cities Ludhiana Jalandhar my grandparents village Jal- uh, Amritsar don't want to go anywhere else mm. um, but I have never met with hatred or animosity or any belligerence anywhere I, and I cannot imagine that ordinary people f- feel any hatred for each other. When I go to India, I go to my grandfather's village. The only connection between Sardar Sodagar Singh, who uh, is my host there, is that he is a refugee from Shahkot in Pakistan mm. and I am a refugee from the village he now lives in. Mm. And we are from the same caste. Mm. So we might be distantly related, but... Uh, that, that is the, he, he has always been very kind and generous his entire family has been kind and generous people are now ready for reconciliation people don't want this border to be the way it is okay let the border remain let there be a border check post but why can't we be like Europe why can't we travel freely there will be very little for uh, Bishop Tutu to uh, do here <laughs> Uh, we'll never forget that. But I, I'm also wondering, uh, should we move the caravan on? Oh, Wait, yes. <laughs> Kim and his llama got on the train in Lahore and went to where? Was it? They went east. Amritsar, maybe? Yeah. Show us around. You, you, you be the llama, I'll be Kim. Um, well, actually, I, you know, because I, I haven't traveled very freely in India. You have to stay stick to some places that your passport mentions, mm-hmm. your visa mentions. You just can't sort of wander off between Pakistan and India. Your vision is restricted even, but think about ours. I mean, it's really, I think it's a problem that we Americans, me, till two weeks ago, have so little sense of of this land or the people. The Americans I've met who are officially here ride around in bulletproof SUVs, big, bulky Toyota Land Cruiser things, and uh, uh, it's a challenge to see through that glass, much less to make a human connection with with people on the street. And I, I, I wonder how we get through it. My own conclusion, frankly, is any place that requires bulletproof cars to sustain the presence, it's really time to leave. That's, that's your cue to get out of there. That's true. But it wasn't always like this. You know, as recently as... Uh, even after 9-11, uh, you could wander around freely. I think the, uh, the trouble actually began after the invasion of Iraq... That's when uh, uh, this uh, universal hatred against the Americans sort of burst out. Um, uh, until before that, it was fine. In the 1990s, uh, for example, uh, the American Consul General in Lahore would call us and say, what has your wife cooked tonight? And I'll bring some beer over. Let's have food at your place. Mm. And he would drive there to our dinky little flat. Uh, in Gulberg and dine with us. 
um, everyone uh, just sort of uh, that there was no threat. So you know, if, you, if I don't know how they're going to do it. But certainly there has to be a way, and it will be very fast. The, 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 the threat will disappear very quickly if something right is done. Don't ask me what that right will be. Well, imagine. I mean, what kind of stroke are we talking about? I think we need to... Uh, first of all, they need to do something like the University of Nebraska did in 1980 with $50 million to reinterpret Islam as a militant, violent uh, religion. It all began there. So it has to begin again there. And uh, uh, it has to be disseminated to the people who have swallowed that rubbish and are now thriving on it. You know, people whose meaning of life derives from a hatred of other people, they need to be re-indoctrinated. The macro mechanics of that, I don't know how they're going to do it. But Gestures, visits, presidential statements, Hillary Clinton visits, her roommate in college is a Pakistani girl, and... They're still very closely in touch. I mean, maybe she knows better. I'm sure she does. Why aren't they doing it? I mean, when the Russians invaded Afghanistan, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, they were very quick. In two years, they had this rubbish from the University of Nebraska flooded into the madrasas of the Pathans, of the entire Pashtun belt in Afghanistan and in what is uh, in Pakistan. Ten years have gone by since 9-11, and it was all building up to 9-11. So why couldn't they do anything in all these years? Maybe they don't want it to happen. Hmm. It's five to midnight, Chris. Hmm. Uh, Someone's got to get cracking right now. Pakistani man of great experience, deep exposure to the United States, said to me the other night in Islamabad, educate our kids... Or don't sleep at night. That's true. He said there aren't enough bullets in the world to kill the people you're going to have to deal with if you don't get busy. How close have you been to K2? And I want you to lead us at least into the foothills. Uh, Okay. The first time I went to Skardu, which is where you begin the walk or the journey to K2, was uh, in 1986. Until then, I had never been there. I go up the Shigar Valley, uh, which I think is one of those breathtakingly beautiful valleys in Pakistan where the, where the Shigar River is apricot trees, rosy-cheeked children, the sound of laughter and cocks growing, golden orioles singing in the tree, trees. And it's unbelievable. And stop to eat, to sample those um, apricots on the trees and people will never turn you away. They'll never shoo you off. They'll bulky. Uh, in fact, they'll they'll uh, lead you to another tree which will be sweeter than the the one that you've been eating off. Mm. 
arrive to arrive at uh, Ascole. British explorers in the 19th century called it World's End. And there are two pubs in London called World's End. <laughs> and at one time I thought I should get on a motorcycle rickshaw, take it up to Ascole, drive it down uh, overland to World's End in Camden in <laughs> London. But that never happened. No one was willing to sponsor it. Hmm. I want to get high enough up the mountain, K2, to see maybe 20, 30 years into Pakistan's future. It's clouded up. It's pretty clouded up. Um, it could, when the mist clears, it could be either way. We could either have gone down the tube or we could have rebounded and turned this country around. You know, there's great potential. The people are wonderful. The people work hard. Uh, the people know how to grow food. We can never be uh, hungry. Um, but there's no direction. There's no leadership. We, we have a total crisis of leadership. So uh, I, I see a very um, clouded up future. Hmm. I really don't know what will happen. And the current crop of leaders, Imran Khan included, they are nothing. Imran Khan, the cricket star who's trying to be a sort of what? Mr. Outside, Ross Perot, independent candidate or something. Hmm. You dismiss him? Absolutely. Why? The man has no sense. He 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 doesn't know. Playing running a country is not like playing cricket. He doesn't have. Might be easier. Well, if it were a country like Switzerland, it might be easier, <laughs> where everything is cut and dried and nicely set. But for a country like Pakistan, where the train system has go gone to spot, where the education is in a shambles, where. Nothing is uh, right at this moment. Hmm. Uh, no, no, no. He's not the man. Uh, he has no one working with him who knows how to uh, sort hmm. this out. And every time they form a new party, what do they do? They get people from all these existing parties, all the thugs. Hmm. So there's uh, something very drastic has to happen. You're looking 30 years down the road. What, what do we hear? What do we want to hear from the great republic on the other side of the world, United States? Well, we want to hear of a better education for Pakistanis. Someone has to guide and control this, a reduction of hostilities, actually elimination of hostilities with India and Pakistan and India becoming more sensible and not playing to being markets for the military-industrial complex of the West. We are markets for them. They want us to carry on being enemies so that they can sell their hardware to us. But we wonder, too, why, why do the Indians and the Pakistanis seem so happy to play along? Or is it just a, just a few military gangsters? I mean, I, it's a few military gangsters. You know, we've got to destroy the mindset of two military 
states confronting each other. We've got to destroy, kill that mindset before America can get out of it. Mm. It's a bloody mess. This conversation helps me anyway so much, and it'll help a lot of people who listen to it. Salman Rashid, I can't thank you enough. You've shared a great deal in this conversation. You call us, we'll be here, and we'll take, we'll walk that trip. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ben Mandelkern produced and edited this conversation in Lahore with the adventurer and author Salman Rashid. Our series, Another Pakistan, is a co-production of the Watson Institute and the Asia Society. Zarmine Ansari is our producer in Pakistan, thanks also to Bina Sarwar of the Jung Media Group. The conversations continue from South Asia and also online. Listeners, please feed back your view, your Pakistan, with a comment on our website, radioopensource.org. I'm Christopher Leiden. Thank you for being part of the Open Source Conversations.